they are now call that Porter College. And, and when we were there, it was College 5. Because we were the college without a name. And the reason we were without a name, it was actually supposed to be Hitchcock College. And the provost at, at, at College 5 was a guy named James B. Hall, who was actually fairly well known. He was the founder of the Irvine Writing Program. Before that, he was Ken Kesey's writing teacher at University of Oregon. Oregon. And he was a guy who failed in Santa Cruz. And you'll be able to understand this, I think, on the basis of style. He was from Ohio. His first book was called Racers to the Sun, about motorcycle racers in, in, in Ohio. And it's maybe the most boring racing book I've ever read. I, I, I couldn't believe I couldn't finish it. But anyway, he dressed with the Midwestern boys' conception of what a yachtsman must look like. This is a guy who in 1970s in Santa Cruz was wearing ascots and sweater vests, and it just didn't fly. So he kind of eventually failed on the basis of, of style. But what really got him was that it was supposed to be Hitchcock College after Alvin Hitchcock. Because he did a lot of filming in the Monterey Bay. And he was also, he lived in Scotts Valley. Tim Hunter, who was my teacher, who is a really good director, he did, um, uh, he did a whole class on Hitchcock, which was just brilliant. It ruined me. Nobody can watch a Hitchcock movie with me now because I recite, you know, all of Tim's insights as though they were mine. But he went up to collect the check from Hitchcock. Hitchcock was on board. It was going to be where his archive ended. He was going to be a big part of the film program. And all we know is that James B. Hall went up to collect the check. And he came back without the check. And Hitchcock would no longer speak to anybody associated with UC Santa Cruz. But that was why it stayed College 5. And, and, and I insist to this day that it still be called College 5. And I get in a lot of trouble. But Kresge actually was named before Kresge actually preceded college five. I think Kresge was the fourth college. It was Porter Stevenson. Um, I can't remember the third one. And, uh, you know, Cowell Porter, Cowell Stevenson. Um, Merrill? Merrill. No, Merrill. Was, yeah. Merrill was third. And uh, um, anyway, and, and Kresge was the, was the fourth. Uh, and that was the real hippie college. That was where Allison's, my wife's, boyfriend was the provost there. And, and uh, um, that was the one that was, they had kin groups and I'm sorry, Jim, this is really boring, but they, if you've been to Santa Cruz and a kin group was this group of like your, your, it was your kin, right? And if you were taught at Kresge, you had to, you had to be, if you were faculty, you had to lead a kin group. And basically it was like Lord of the Flies where everybody had to sit around. They actually had a conch, and when you had the conch, you, you, you were able to top. And the problem was that it ruined an entire generation of idiots to whom nobody listened before or since. But in, at, at, at Kresge, as long as they had the conch, they could talk, you know, at length and nobody could interrupt them. And it ruined them for the afterlife. You know, when they went to work and they tried to do that in their, in their you know, and there were office meetings, and it just didn't work. When they walked into the office and pulled out a seashell and blew into it, yeah. it didn't have the same desired effect. And it was also famous for a guy who, all four years, wore a Confederate general's uniform. And that was all he ever wore. He never wore shoes. And ran into him years later at an alumni event, and he'd become a district attorney in Orange County and threw up every morning. But, you know, he still remembered Santa Cruz as <laughs> 
very fondly. Confederate General and Big Sur. That was an homage. Yeah, that was his homage to that. It was it Brodigan? Is that right? Yeah, that's Richard Brodigan. And um, I actually met the guy who's the inspiration for most of trout fishing in America. Look up a guy named Keith Abbott. He actually did... He actually did uh, a biography of Brodigan. He was a very close friend of Brodigan's. And Keith Abbott was probably the funniest guy I ever met in person. And we were going up to to, to uh, um, uh, Squaw Valley. And this was 73. So we're all going up for the writings conference. And Keith was the only one that had a car. So we went with him. So he had gas money. And he regaled us the whole time. It was just hilarious. He was telling us the story of his novel, which is called Gush. And if you look it up, you can still find it online. And it's the story of the Gush family who lives in Monterey. They're all on welfare. And the Buck Gush, who's the patriarch, culminates the the the, 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 the ending of the book is when he kicks out his television screen and they all have to go to work. But and but he's telling this story and it's just fucking hilarious. I got home and I got the book and I read it and I thought, how come this doesn't work on the page? But I also realized that Brodigan kept him very close because all he had to do was transcribe Keith Abbott. If you read Trout Fishing in America, Trout Fishing in America Shorty is basically Keith Abbott's monologue. Bay Area and Santa Cruz in, in my day was just amazing for who was available. I mean, Ray Carver was one of my teachers, you know, although Ray was so drunk at the time that this was in the three-year period when he didn't finish a, 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 a year anyplace. It was at UC Santa Cruz in 1970, he started Quarry Magazine, which I ended up editing. Then 71, he was at UC Santa Barbara. 73, he was at uh, University of Iowa and didn't finish the year at any of those places, but uh, unfortunately sobered up and got to be a lot less entertaining. Do you have a good school story for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky to go to college and I went to Loyola Marymount, which is a Jesuit school in LA, which uh, was a real bit of luck i mean i i was expecting to go to junior college or maybe like cal state long beach or cal state fullerton and i just had a couple teachers encourage me to like apply and i i did i ended up getting some financial aid and but it worked out i i'm someone who kind of like blossomed in college i guess like i kind of came into my own in a sense i was a dj at kxlu which was a big kind of like punk rock station in the 80s and you know, kind of the indie rock flagship in LA. That's kind of, that's something I'm, has sent me off in a million different directions as far as bands I've discovered and loved and carried on, you know, um, through the years. And like, I remember playing Seven Inch by the Lilies. I didn't know who they were. They're 20 years later, we were, I was using Lilies tracks for Lodge 49. But actually, we actually got Kurt Heasley to uh, record a song just for us. And so, yeah, I like, so I was very placid there in the 90s. It was, you know, wasn't the kind of weird burnout post-flower 70s world. Um, there was actually hope then. But uh, yeah, overall, like I, I think I had a good ex- good experience. When you talk about there actually being hope, are you speaking specifically of the school or just sort of late capitalist society in general? Well, yeah, I think generally when I like, I just compare to someone who's 22 now, what they are stepping into compared to what I, 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 yeah, it was, I, I had just had a stronger sense of the future than I think anyone of that age now, right now does. Um, yeah, it was a quiet period. I mean, it was like uh, the campus, LMU had a section of the wall, the Berlin Wall. This would have been like 95. And it was like this kind of like trophy from this war that 
the U.S. won. Like they want like capitalism won. The U.S. You know the whole and yeah, everyone is feeling pretty good about themselves um, in that period. Maybe there's a some kind of parallel to be drawn here then between you know I remember. I remember when I first heard about Lodge 49 and people were suggesting that it was kind of a story about late, late capitalism and, you know, the struggles that everyone was going through. And, and Shaky Town is obviously written about a very different time, but there's this pervasive sort of struggle for for upward mobility and, and just sort of living in the shadow of Los Angeles. To me, that the point really got driven home reading the chapter about Dodger Fields. I, that was for, for whatever reason, I think, you know, maybe because they were having a good season and in contention uh, I had right before I read the book, I read a story about, uh, you know, how they essentially had to raise a neighborhood in order to put this baseball stadium there. At the actual, uh, the book you should read on that is by another friend, Eric Nussbaum. He came out last year. It's called stealing home. And the whole point with, with what happened to Chavez Ravine was that the Dodgers were not, the instigators of that. That was supposed to be, they cleared that, that area, that, that whole ravine, which was three neighborhoods, La Loma, Bishop, and I'm not remembering the third one, Valverde. That was all supposed to be public housing. And the majority of the people in there took the buyout. Eventually, it was supposed to be not just public housing. It was a series of three skyscrapers that were going to be designed and built by Richard Neutra. And they would be looking down on City Hall and in the middle of all this, the guy who was the prime moving force was found to be a communist. And this is during a Red Scare era. The land was confiscated and it sat idle for about seven years because the project was scrapped when they discovered this guy's commie connections. And the Dodgers actually stepped in and, and Jane Wyman was the moving force behind that. And they just said, you know, so it's a really complicated situation. My take on it was actually from one of my padrinas. Uh, my family goes back to about the 1870s in LA, and my great grand and two of my great grandfathers were were uh, uh, 49ers. One of them, Jacob Miller, ended up in Hollywood where he had a ranch and introduced the avocado. When you say 49ers, you mean gold miners, not football yes. players. Yeah, yeah, no, they they the one one came came west building snow sheds with the Santa Fe Railway, and then built all the stations through the San Fernando Valley on up into Ventura County. And the other was a gold miner in Mariposa, California, and then realized he could make more money running a freight line because when you could sell Levi's for more than they cost today, you know, you made pretty good bucks. So he retired as a gentleman far- farmer in about 1870. All our connections, Mexico, LA was a Mexican city at that in that era. And, you know, all my family spoke spoke Spanish. All of our padrinas and padrinas, our godfathers, godmothers, were old land grant families, Sepulvedas, Picos, Villasenors. And the story that we got on Chavez Ravine was from one of my brother's padrinas, I think one of the Villasenors. And she had some, she had a friend who was living there. And she was the one who insisted that this woman had was the one last ticket out on, on, on her front door chained to her front door and that she put a curse on the, on the Dodgers. Um, so is it true? Probably not. Did we want to believe it? Yeah. Not based on last night's uh, result, but no, no. Although we're also at the point where, where when we, when we, that story was published, it, we had to do a little addendum that, that they will never win in Chavez Ravine. You know, they won last year, but they didn't win in Chavez Ravine. So, so we have two options now. One is which if they, lose to the Giants or anybody else along the way. The curse is obviously still in place. 
and we're going to do a Kickstarter where we're going to, you know, try and raise enough money to hire a real Kulandetta who will take the curse off. And of course, if the worst happens and the Dodgers win the World Series in Chavez Ravine, then probably I'll have to talk about last year when I actually took it upon myself to hire a Kulandetta to take care, take care, take the, tr- the curse off. I was planning to do that without taking credit, but you know, it's incumbent on me now. Curses in general have parameters, but not a timeline necessarily. Is that right? <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> Is that your understanding of curses? No, curses mutate too. I mean, all you have to look at the curse of the Bambino, you know, the curse of the Billy Goat, and they change constantly. You're speaking very specifically about baseball curses. Yeah, but I think it's true with all, almost all curses. You know, I mean, you know, I, I can't figure out what when mine was lifted, the curse of publication, which lasted basically sort of 30 years. I think probably Jim actually was the good and data who took care of it. Yeah. How sort of sympathetic are you to that notion that Lodge 49 specifically is very much a, a late capitalist story? Uh, I, I definitely I get it. I don't think I, I think it is naturally as a. I mean, it's a show that has some fantastical elements, but it's really grounded in life as, I, as I've known it. You know, it's kind of written in the wake of... I, I, there was no theoretical framework in the writing. It was just, this is kind of what's happening. I was on set one day and I was just chatting with uh, Wyatt, plays Dud, Wyatt Russell. And uh, I told him this story that in my mind was like a funny story is that, uh, where I was squatting in the house I had kind of grew up in because it was it had been foreclosed, but the bank hadn't taken it yet. So we still had the keys. So I had lived kind of in this empty house that I had grown up in. And sometimes realtors would come by to show people. And I would usually be able to like, kind of like get out in time. But more than once, I was asleep in the back room and people came in and found this like gross man and his boxers just like squatting in this home. And I was telling this and like, and Doug, or I'm sorry, Wyatt's like, Oh, just like in the, the first episode of the show. And I remember going like, Oh yeah, you're right. It just, I, the, I, I had written that scene without thinking, I just didn't connect the two. I was kind of just my own kind of stupidity, but that general mood of that period after the, the crash in 08 and 2012 definitely infused the show. And like that, that feeling that I think Dud and Liz have of like I mentioned before, of not, not really having a sense of the future, the way like, you know, my parents, neither of them went to college, they were able to buy a house. They had, my dad worked in plumbing. My mom was a nurse's assistant at convalescent, in convalescent care, you know, that they could buy a house that just seemed natural in the course of things. Um, and that world that I think, the Dudley, Liz and Dud's father, kind of a man who also didn't go to college. He was able to start a shop and have a life that just kind of slowly got away from everybody. And there's this sense of like, where, you know, where are we going? And I think that definitely infused the show. And I think at some points, I think we were kind of like maybe more aware of it in terms of like a, a com- in a sense of a com- commenting on things. But most of it, most of the time, it's just a world I kind of hopefully understand a bit is like just living month to month. That's how the characters live. And I, I don't think that's portrayed very much uh, on TV, at least. I think you probably see a little b- bit more in books. But I think it's Shaky Town is an example of a, it's from the viewpoint of the people who are in it. So they're, you know, the dr- there's not these aspirational dreams per se. It's the, everyone's just getting by. 
And I think uh, that's one of the joys I think in Shaky Town is seeing that captured in a really eloquent way. I think there's one story in Shaky Town narrated by an older guy who's kind of looking back at where he came from. And he maybe is a, a stand in for Lou in some ways. A guy who's kind of his talent for art has kind of gotten him out, but he's also never left. When, if you kind of grow up that way, you never leave it. And yeah, that story kind of telescopes that in a really lovely way. But yeah, Lodge 49 is definitely a, a it's, it's, I would say, yeah, I don't know if it's crypto socialist or anti-capitalist. It's just like, this is what, this is what it's like. So we're just, we're just getting by. I, I always think of it, it's about the news tightening. You know, the difference in my generation, and to some extent, Jim's generation, and it's ending now, was we had slack. I was able to work part-time jobs. I went to Glendale College. I had to go back and make 15, up, 15 units of F. And I worked three part-time jobs and I made enough money to support a wife and a kid. I got married at 19. I had a kid when I was 21 and you could do that and go to college. And my wife didn't work. There's no way that you could possibly do that today. And I'm just thinking when we moved to Santa Cruz, I lived there from, from 1970 to um, 1981 and by the time we moved out, you could see where things were headed. I mean, when you graduated, it used to be that you would graduate from UC Santa Cruz and then just hang out, just stay there because you could afford to do it. You can't do that now. You can't afford to live any place but a dorm room. They can't attract any faculty because they can't afford to have them housed except in places like Watsonville. Um, and, you know, as I say, when I talk about the news tightening, it's just I look at the kids now and it's just like, there's no way that they will be able to do what I was able to do. I was working at one point as a gas station mechanic. I also had an office at the university. And it's like, how do you do that? You can't do that now. But I was, I was editing a magazine, Quarry West, that was started by Ray Carver. And, and, you know, it seemed perfectly logical to do that and talk about Proust across the gas pumps with your former professors. Um, and, you know, no way in hell is that going to happen now. It's telling, though, that your example of something you can't do anymore was still a situation where you were working three jobs. Yeah, that's, that's another way to look at it. Yeah, but working three jobs, it gave you enough to live. And you can't, you can work three jobs now, and a lot of kids do, and they can't afford to live. You know, it's just, and, and even good jobs, right? But, but I mean, what has happened, um, I mean, I finally pretty much got out of, politics altogether. I was once a member of the Young Socialist Alliance. And I think my last installment was um, I became a syndical anarchist, um, which was basically a political um, philosophy that existed in Spain for about eight months in a shoe factory uh, before Franco came in. And and basically it meant that the the workers not only controlled the means of production, but also handled design and sales, right? And everything was done by a boat. Where does Mr. Kim fit into all this, into, you know, the question of upward mobility and, and I guess the American dream and trying to get by? Well, he's a perfect example. The man that was based on the story, they were actually robbed a number of times. He was a really, really good guy. And, um, Eventually, he closed the, the he closed the the liquor store, and it has sat empty for for twelve years. No no idea what's happened to the family. We have at one point I knew them very fairly well, uh, and but I I looked at what they were going through, and 
the kind of humiliations they experience daily. And, uh, you know, nobody was writing about those, those guys. Nobody was writing about any of these people. Part of it was the language barrier. But um, they were very much a part of the neighborhood. And they really tried to cater to the neighborhood. In other words, they, they, would, they would, you know, they were hiring people to make tamales and make menudo, which they would sell at the store. And they, they basically got no credit. They just, you know, they were, they were just basically shat on every opportunity by, by the people who could. I mean, there's in Mexico and in all sort of Latin American companies, it's what they call the kick down factor. In other words, if you're Mexican, you feel like you can kick pretty much anybody except for the Cubans and the Costa Ricans. The only people who can't kick back are, are the are people from Belize or Honduras. But you had the same thing here where, where you know, this Korean family was was sort of the, the butt of jokes for the people who weren't able to kick anybody else. One of the ways in which hopefully, not necessarily publishing, but just culture in general has improved, particularly in recent years, is this idea you know, of representation, of giving more people a voice and an opportunity to make art in a public way. Do either of you get the sense that, that these sorts of stories are being told now or are they still something that people are just generally shying away from? I think so. I think it's things are are different for sure. And I, I you know, in a weird way, I, I think we, you'd see things in movies and stuff now and then like that would get things right. And movies, I don't know, I think that part of movie making is kind of done. But I think tel- the television the last 10 years has been amazing, you know, for the most part. The fact that anything like Lodgeford and I've made it to air is, you know, ridiculous. Um, but I will say, I feel like books are always kind of ahead of the game. And in that sense, I feel like, yeah, there's, it is a good moment in that sense. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the kind of middle class of writers has always been like very predominantly white male. Right. And I think that is changing in, in, in a way that is just natural and representative. If you're, especially if you're like writing about a place like Southern California, you know, um, it's just you're, if you have any foot in reality, that's what you are going to be writing about. So I, I do, on that level, I do feel like the actual publishing industry aside, I actually, the, I think the, the number of like voices, uh, is something to be really positive about for sure. I look at a book by Paul Beatty, The Sellout, and that's a book that was turned down by 40 publishers and eventually, I think, published in England. But once upon a time, I, I, it was Robert Kirsch's son, Jonathan, who told me the thing that you have to remember doesn't matter how bad the publisher is, how bad the distribution, if a book's any good, it will find an audience. And he's right. And Beatty's book is a great example of that. I mean, I've known about the Cowboys in Compton for, you know, 50 years and nobody else did. Nobody else seemed to think it was worth writing about. And Beatty, bless his heart, finally gets somebody in England to to publish his book and it takes off. And it's mostly was word of mouth. Now, of course, he's living in New York and is is happily part of the Pantheon. But that's an example of something that has changed in the last 30, 40 years, but almost always it's books you find that are discovered by an audience, you know, that's kind of unexpected. It's word of mouth as much as anything else early on. But also people really crave good work. They, they really, when they, when they run across good writing, and, you know, they, they, they recognize it. Um, and that's, 
hopeful, I think. If something's good, it'll find an audience, but it has to find a publisher first, right? That's a major, yeah. that's, a, that's yeah. a big gap there. I mean, you know, and, and you're, you're an example of this in that, obviously, again, this was something that I, I know you've been working on for a number of years, but, but you know, that at least the pieces have been there for a long time. And it, the book does mention the other unpublished works you have. How painful of a process is that to, to really pour everything you have into something and just, it sits on a shelf? At a certain point, you, you, when you get kicked off enough, you know, you, you have to accept it. I mean, downstairs in the basement, I, I, I have files I can't go through because it's 30 years of lies and groveling. And, you know, going through, you know, where I'm saying yet again, just finish this book. And it's, you know, 2008, 2010. But one of the great examples is a book that my daughter and I did together called Genius in Retrospect. And it's about a 6,000 mile road trip in Mexico. But it's also about our history, family history in Mexico. And it was a, it was a great book, and we entrusted it to an agent. This was you know 2006, who turned it over to an 18 year old to read the book, and she didn't really care for the photographs. And that was you know, and at this point, yeah, I, I should have done a lot more. But I mean, some some of it has been my fault probably of not being savvy enough to market this stuff. But you also run up, particularly in fiction, New York has a very very, you know, a very chiseled idea of what Southern California is. And they would like their version presented back to them. In other words, when Tom Wolfe comes out and writes The Pump House Gang, that is their defined, their definitive version of surfing in Southern California. People I know who are part of that culture say that he got it wrong. I look at the, the Tangerine Flake Baby, which is a car show I attended, that was my particular niche. And I know he got it wrong, but you can't tell anybody in New York that's the case. They prefer archaeology or anthropology. They prefer to send, you know, people they trust, particularly from New York, to come out and report back to civilization on what the natives are doing. The other barrier you face, the primary barrier, I think, is not so much um regionalism as if you're writing about the working class, they basically are not interested. That's something that's changed radically. There was a point and granted it was kind of this lefty era, but I mean, as late as, as 1948, you would have bestsellers like count 10 by Hans Otto Storm, who was a socialist novelist, you know, on the bestseller list. Uh, Pietro Di Donato did Christ in Concrete, which was a bestseller. Um, you're not seeing those books anymore. And it was a change I saw happen in my lifetime. There was a point at which most journalists were working class kids who were rising beyond their station. In other words, if you go back to the great era of the New York Post, even the New York Times, Mike Royko in Chicago, you look at the columnists, great columnists across the country. They were basically kind of scrappers. They were people who would, who would you know, reporting back after Kennedy's assassination somehow it became a profession that was acceptable for the middle classes and the upper classes. And since then, it's been dominated by that. And you can see it. You can see it in the attitudes of, of the newspapers and trying to deal with editors there. Um, 
is just they, they I mean, they're blind spots that you can't overcome. I'm a journalist by trade. And I think about that a lot from the standpoint in that how many movies of hero journalists have we seen over the decades? It's, it's very disproportionate in the number of movies where like the, the journalists are, are the big are the big heroes of the day. Or if you take a look at best American short stories, or you look at basically the basic book list, take a look at the number of books and stories that are set in academe in some fashion or books about writers or books about, you know, teaching as, 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 as a center. And that's a, that's a profound difference. The adage is write what you know, and both of you are writing what you know, but maybe it's, it's the problem of the sort of, I guess, the university industry and that, that it, that it is so insular that these people by default are just writing about being writers. And you can't blame them because I mean, there was a moment when it was possible in the 40s, 50s, and even into the 60s, where you could make a living as a freelance writer. If you could sell one story to the Saturday Evening Post, you could basically make your nut for the year. Um, that's not possible. But I knew a lot of older writers who were, who were, you know, were not terribly successful, but were able to make, you know, make a living. Um, I was actually able to make a living in the as as late as uh, I started in the, in, in the mid ages. By 1985, I was able to freelance. I worked mostly for airline magazines, and um, you could actually make a living doing that. And then that started to go away, just as print journalism started to collapse. But there was a point. I used to work a lot for for underground newspapers and independents. I worked a lot for LA Reader, LA Weekly. And at one point, I did a lot of work for LA Weekly in the in the mid '80s, and someplace around 2005, Weekly offered me a cover story, and I realized that they were prepared to pay me less in 2005 than they paid me in two, in 1985. And I thought, you know, it's over. You can't do it. You, you can't you can't blame people for making a living. I mean, the fact is that you can make a living teaching, which is, and you can't make a living writing anymore. But I was looking at some weirdly some old uh, newspapers from the mid '60s in advertising, and there was a like 24 inch television, like you know, in a box that was like four hundred dollars in 1965. <laughs> so, so I don't know. Maybe that's the trade off: cheaper, better TVs, sure, but zero cheaper TVs. Jeans, jeans have sort of gone up and down between the gold rush yeah. and Jim having having heard you dis- discuss this and read some interviews of the two of you did together I get the sense that you're sort of there was power for you in the realization that it was impossible to make a living as a writer yeah yeah the, the key to writing is giving up I think I maybe at one point in my 20s I thought that but then I, I just let go of it and so when I started taking writing more seriously in my early 30s it was about what I was writing it was like, how do I get this story right? How do I tell this? Why am I obsessed with this like image? What does it mean? And like the writing the story is the kind of unpacking it. And there wasn't very much beyond that. And I think that was, yeah, that did kind of save me as a writer. I, I, I this idea that there's this place to go, you know, if I had, working in TV was never, and I never thought this would happen. And if I, had tried to get there, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, you know what I mean? Like what happened? I mean, I, I've heard you describe a series of lucky breaks. What were those breaks? The lucky breaks, as far as being a writer were I, I'm on like lose encouragement. Um, and I heard other, I had heard about it from a couple other people. I applied for this fellowship 
at Stanford, the Stegner Fellowship, and I got in. And that just, that was good because it just gave me time to write and all that. And then like everyone else, I had a collection of stories that nobody wanted. And then a dear friend, Suzanne Rebecca is a, a writer. She, she took a story or she offered to take a story that I had written and, and show it to an editor she had been talking to at The New Yorker. And they ended up taking that story unsolicited. I didn't have an agent or anything. And that's like an insane break. So off of that, I was able to, then people wanted the collection. My blood pressure is rising just hearing that story. I know, but like, <laughs> that's what I mean. So that's like, none of that would have happened if I had tried. You know what I mean? Like it was, I, well, I focused on trying to get, avoid like I just want my the goal was always to be like if you read this you know that I wrote it that's it it's just like this is unmistakably whether it's good or bad I wrote it your voice yeah that yeah that's I should have said that and then so and then it was kind of the same thing with tv I at the time I was I, I had a book come out a short story collection come out you know it sold 200 copies and you know, and, but I was hoping maybe I could get a teaching job. So that's what I was aiming for. And then I just, you know, realized that there's a million people going for two jobs. And, and so I kind of wrote Lodge 49 as just like a writing sample to like give to my literary agent to maybe give to like a TV type person. And so it got to someone at UTA, et cetera. And, and then it just kind of kept going up the chain. And this happened when I was 40, you know what I mean? So like the, if this had happened when I was 22, I, I'd be dead by now. You know, I'd be... You'd be dead or, or an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's not too late for me to be an asshole. Yeah, it's true. Still be it's also not too late for you to be dead, to be fair. Yeah, exactly. So, but I guess I was just like, it all. it's all gravy to me. I had no expectation for this. I, I take it seriously, the privilege of being able to do it. Um, and I also know these trains don't always come back around. So I, every aspect of like doing Lodge 49, I... I appreciated um but i but it goes back to what you're saying like i can draw a line to just being committed to just trying to not focus on a career but focus on what like the book is the thing the book is what matters not the career and and i think a lot of young writers understandably kind of i think reverse those and at some point you'll figure it out um, but also means you're going to get you're going to have long periods the one thing I wish someone had told me as a young writer was that there's periods of hibernation as a writer and they can last weeks, months, years, even decades. And that's just part of the deal. And if you're still going to do it, then you're a writer, if you know that. But yeah, you know, I, I've gone years without writing a word, you know, um, I, people kind of sit down every day and write, I mean, God bless them. But I'm always reading and I'm always trying to yeah, get at that thing that you like that that is voice, you know, whatever that means and all those things. I Michael um uh Shaben, I saw him read once and he just said the most true thing ever, because I mean he's pretty spot on on pretty much everything. But um he I think someone like someone very earnestly raised their hand like in the QA is like, How do you become a writer? And he gave a very earnest answer and he said, You can control uh, it takes three things to be a writer, hard work luck and talent and you only control one so just you know um and he's right like you, luck is is it's a big part of it and you made it and and luck is also patience in some way um in some sense talent is sticking around and um so 
So yeah, I'll, I'll stop. The quality of lasting. Yeah. In baseball, they call them compilers. You stick around <laughs> to get really good stats by the end of your career. I mean, Lou, is there is there sort of a, a power in writing something and not necessarily knowing that it's going to be published? I mean, at least in a sense, is that freeing? Well, the way I, I, I explain it to people is, is, is that, you know, if you're a writer, you don't really have a choice. You know, I mean, you're, you're, you're stuck with it. And um, when I was taking classes at UC Santa Cruz, the people that terrified me the most were the people in the workshop who show up the first you know, day and talk about how they had to write every day. If they didn't write every day, they were physically ill. And, you know, I kept saying, God, what are these people? And unfortunately, most of them would drop out by the fourth or fifth week. They just got too sick from not writing. They were in the hospital. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I, but I, I never understood that because I, I couldn't write every day, I, you know. But what kept me writing was the fact that I was a much better person when I did. You know, it, it's, it's, I have a lot of three-by-five cards stacked up on my wall because I'm from that generation. And the one that's lasted the longest is one that I wrote myself that just says, the essential pleasure is in the work. And it's that remembered pleasure that you get when you got a sentence right or you got a paragraph right, page, and sometimes you even get a whole story right. And the fact is, I go back and I look at the stories and the sentences that thrilled me when I was 20. And in some cases, they make me wince, but that does not diminish the pleasure I felt at the time and the pleasure that I keep trying to retrieve. Um, and yeah, it's that. It's sort of like getting up and, and, and you know, getting something right um, that, that, that keeps you going. And that's unrelated to all the business aspects. Just to add, I will say that that process is not linear at all. It's not a, a, a step. You're not moving up a pyramid to becoming. I, I feel like every time you write a story or anything, you're you're kind of reinventing the wheel. And it, you may, but may, but I think you are developing. Obviously, there's things in motion that you may get eventually get to things faster. But like it's it's always scary. It's always kind of painful. But then, like Lou's saying, when it gets fun, then then you're like, oh, this is why, this is why we're, this is a good reason to do it. To me, it's always been connecting seemingly dissonant threads together. It's finding the mm-hmm. common link between different ideas. That That is always the most thrilling part of writing for me. You can have, have seen a, a person at a train station six years ago, and somehow that is the key to understanding, like the way their expression on their face will somehow inform something that you're writing that is, has nothing to do with that, but that those images kind of coalesce and, and it's there waiting for you. I think that is like, that's the kind of sensation that is, there's a there's not a lot of, uh, you know, reward in, in writing, but I think that reward is worth it, honestly, because I, I know what it's, I know what it's like to finish, to step away. And yeah, that burrito tastes much better when you've written a paragraph, I don't know. It's like, I don't know. I, I remember a buddy of, you know, he's one of these guys who kind of surfs every day. He actually lives in Santa Cruz now. It is, it maybe, it, you know, he's a family man now. I can't serve as much, but like, he always said that he's like, I just, the beer always tastes better if I've been in the water. Is he dud basically? <laughs> he does have some dud like qualities. 
I've been thinking about this a lot just lately. I was also thinking about it in the context of, of an interview that, that I heard with the both of you. You're talking a little bit about pension and you, you mentioned a documentary. I, I ended up being able to dig it up. Oh, really? No way. So what is it? It came out in 2001. Very strange documentary. I don't want to go. Yeah, I, it's yeah. boring. I won't go into too much, but I wanted to watch it specifically because of that shot that you mentioned of the woman, of his yeah. ex-girlfriend standing in front of his cabana. Yeah. I was reading Pynchon's latest book not long ago uh, after hearing some people talk about it. And in the context of conspiracy theories, which are, you know, obviously it, there's a there's an underlying theme of conspiracy in, in Lodge 49 to some degree as well. I feel like I understand the appeal of conspiracy from the standpoint of, there, again, it gets back to that power of connecting the dots between different ideas and yeah. finding finding the meaning in a text that might not necessarily be there. It's, it's a particular American trait, this, this wanting to have knowledge, secret knowledge that nobody else does. And in my grandfather's generation, he was a, he was a, 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 a Mason. He was a 32nd order Mason. Um, but you had Elks, you had Moose, you had Odd Fellows, you had Rosicrucians, who were probably the fringiest of all that promise you the secret knowledge and, and why this knowledge would be imparted to, you know, a dentist in, in Fillmore, California, I don't know, but it was important to believe that. And we don't have those fairly benign social clubs anymore, but we have QAnon, which I think fills the same purpose for a lot of people and, and makes them feel like they're on the inside and in the know in a way that nobody else is. And, and it, it, it's, it's maybe it's in other cultures, but it seems particularly American to me. I think it also gets back to, again, upper mobility. You know, this is another perhaps pervasive theme that ties these two ideas together in Lodge 49 is not feeling like you have control over your life from a fiscal or economic you know, standpoint or any sense of upward mobility, but maybe you can find the secrets of life. I think with the, maybe the essential core, like when I was at like Lodge 49, as far as the people involved in like this history of fraternal organizations and all their permutations, I, I always found something kind of beautiful in this idea that like, yeah, your dentist or your insurance sale that like in the daytime, they are that. And at night they take on this, there's this kind of grandeur that is infused into your life. And if you can take it with a sense of humor, that's for me is the fucking key to everything. I, I, I feel like that's what's missing with QAnon. It's, 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 a, it's a humorless, deranged vision of... It's funny, but not intentionally so. Yes. Not by design. And I, I think well, in Launch for Night, it's almost like I always, we always use the phrase in the, with the writers where it was like conspiracy from below. These are people kind of like, are searching for something and they're looking for avenues to search down. But the thing they keep running into is themselves. This kind of esoteric pathway is not a path is a pathway to themselves. Essentially. I think that is like the, the heart of like what I think is a, a very beautiful tradition in Western kind of esoterica and philosophy. I'd like the starting with the Rosicrucians and that they're, what I love the thing with the Rosicrucians is like they it kind of started as a joke and people took it seriously. And then we ended up with the Masons. And I was watching for an hour, I was trying to imagine what if we just kept the sense of humor throughout? Like I was trying to, I mean, it's a fantasy of the type, but it has precedent. And, and I am playing off 
a lot of like historical movements. But yeah, I think that that looking for meaning and it, it just breaks my heart watching because I was thinking like when QAnon was really kind of cresting, you know, before the election, all that stuff. I found it heartbreaking. And because those are human beings who are just, you know, <laughs> the guy who started QAnon is like a pornographer in the, you know, somewhere in, in the Philippines. Yeah, he's American. He lives like <laughs> Ron Watkins. Yeah, there's no there's no elegance. There's no flaw. It's just and it, there's no how these things go and permutate is is amazing and amplified by social media. We actually live in a period now where there are no secrets. There actually is no secret. And that's probably part of the soul as to a soul sickness that we're all dealing with. Lodge 49 still has a foot in the world where there's there are there is a hidden sense of things a mystery well one, one of the one of the things that the two of you share not only did you both have a catholic education but you were actually taught by the same priest which is is, is astonishing <laughs> to me in a sense i mean isn't isn't modern conspiracy kind of filling a similar hole that religion used to fill for people i i 100 what i found what QAnon feels like it's so end of the world oriented whereas like the kind of western esoteric tradition that i love is oriented towards uh, the future and a the beginning. They love the book of revelations, don't they? Yeah. That's it's like, read, just read one other book. Read but, Joe uh, for the humility at least. But yeah, I, it absolutely is filling a void of that. There are unseen forces um, that I can maybe touch, touch the, the, you know, the, the tendrils of this Godhead or something, you know, like a hundred percent. Jim kind of, fell ass backwards in a sense into a television writing career. You know, Los Angeles is very much an industry town, certainly more, you know, probably than, than New York is. Lou, how have you been a professional writer in Los Angeles for so long and managed to avoid showbiz? Because I'm spoiled because I, I also, I, I was ruined at a very early age by the godlike powers that you're given when you're writing fiction. I started as a journalist. I went to Glendale JC and I thought I was going to be a lifetime journalist. I actually turned down scholarships at University of Missouri and SC to go to UC Santa Cruz. And I thought I would get a good liberal arts education and apply that to, to um, my journalism career. What happened there, I mean, first of all, you have to understand at that point, Santa Cruz was the hottest campus in the country. Life magazine had done an entire spread on the garden and and the redwoods. It was the hardest campus to get into, not just uh, UCs, but on on the West Coast. It was harder to get into Santa Cruz than Stanford. Everybody wanted to go there. And once you got there, um, you were hooked. I started taking, you know, I started as a politics major and then started taking my first fiction classes. And once I'd taken a fiction class and learned the joys of lying, um, without research, um, I was hooked. And the few, I mean, you can't live in Los Angeles without being approached to some extent. Um, and it was usually some secretary that wanted me to write, you know, a children's thing for Disney. But the experiences I had in which I would see what people wanted to do with my work or when they wanted me to write to their specs. I was so ruined by fiction writing in which you do have godlike powers that I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I'm really stupidly stubborn. If I'd known where television was taking you, 
um, where it went, I, I would have, I should have swallowed a lot more. I was perfectly happy to sell out immediately. Yeah. So, and I recommend that course to anyone. You sold out, but you made, you made this like very idiosyncratic product. You know, we got two seasons of it, but I love it with all my heart, but like best case scenario is probably not something that was going to be, you know, necessarily catch the world on fire in, in that oh, yeah, way yeah. of super popular no, culture. It, 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 timing is everything. I think if, uh, you know, early 2000s, it wouldn't have been made. And I don't think it'd be made right now. Well, then again, everyone's buying kind of, apparently everyone's buying really hopeful blue sky stuff because of Ted Lasso. But um, uh, but yeah, no, the it was a sweet spot. I, it, you know, a lot of fiction writers have come into television and, you know, a lot of the feature, all the feature writers were trying to come down to television because you can, you have more control than what, well, basically the thing that Lou and his era was missing. Like the writer in TV land has a lot of control. The, the auteur. Yeah. I, but I, I would say though, that like, that's true, but also I, I enjoy the collaboration and work, you know, I, I don't know how to set up a shot, you know, like all that, all that stuff. Um, but as far as like, yeah, tone and, and voice and subject, yeah, like the writer can do it. Um, and it was a weird period. Like, I think a lot of crazy stuff is the people are going to be finding over the next like decade of like, oh, this got made. That's insane. We're, you know, um, that might be shrinking a little bit now, but who knows? I mean, everyone. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a handle on where things are in the industry, but like in general, though, yeah, it it I did. I feel like I stole some fire. Like I kind of ran in. If I don't do anything else, I'll be, you know, very happy. So it's being discovered as well. I found it on Hulu. Yeah. Which is pretty common. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. I, I think the people who find it generally like, I mean, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing, but the people who like it, like it a lot and like talk about it with friends and stuff. So it'll, I've mentioned this before, but yeah, like I think all this stuff I love is kind of has a, had a small audience <laughs> at the beginning in many ways. I mean, not that I don't, I'm like, I love a lot of big popular things as well, but it just seems makes sense that Lodge 49 is kind of like, has a certain, shall we say like a, a cachet in its obscurity. Listen, this is something I grapple with in my own, own life a lot. And, and maybe Lou can relate to this too. It's, it's something I think about is I've got all, all these like zines over here and all these like weird records and stuff. And I've always liked the stuff that is kind of obscure and on the fringes. And then I'm left wondering like why more people don't enjoy the thing that I do. Like, of course, like that that's the stuff that I like. And that's the stuff that I'm putting out in the world. Then invariably yeah. you're kind of going to be an acquired taste. But I bet that taste and all those things you've sought out has also put you in touch with a lot of like where you the people you meet on that search on those fringes are like that's kind of like that's the joy right there and so yeah I, I i have good friends who are like that kind of archivist mentality it's you know i have friends you know but the music supervisor supervisor and lodge guy tom patterson i mean like his record collection is just insane i've been stealing from it for 20 years and sometimes they'll be like what am i doing what have i done like what is this all for but then he's like oh i do it because i fucking love it you know it's it's ralph ellison has a phrase that i call i forget what kind but he's like he's a citizen of the culture which i kind of love it, it's it takes it out of like national it's like you're a citizen of the culture like you need to go visit these places and and take care of them you know, and I think that that is an important thing. So I, people who 
do that, seek it out, and can it, can it introduce others to these things? I think that's like worth its weight in gold. That's what Shaky Town is, right? The real world that Lou is based it on. It, it's a celebration of a very specific place that that story you feel hasn't really been told. Yeah, not enough. And I think it's, it's never been told quite like this and with the kind of depth and care and style. So um, I do like this sort of the doomed uh, uh, mission statement of Tiger Van, though. <laughs> where, 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 like, where, where if it all ends in obscurity, it's fine. Like, at least he got to put something out into the world. Well, we had a book locks. Colleen Dunbates to, was talking about about the um, um, the mantra, the the mission statement, and um, which I usually have in front of me. But I you don't. need to get it on one of those index cards on the wall, Lou. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I actually had it printed out, but it's not. It's not in front of me right now because my wife keeps putting poetry down. Um, but uh, um, you re- can you recite it from memory, Jim? Uh, yeah, uh, our business model is failure. We believe in books. We believe in books. Our business model is failure. We plan to lose money and fold quickly. Join us. So there Join we go. Us. And, how, and how's that going? And, and Colleen Dunbates, <laughs> who is a, the, a publisher, said that's the truest, truest statement ever written about publishing. You know, it's just that you only come to that after 10 years of failure. You know, we, we've, we've sort of speeded up, speeded up the curve a bit. But uh, it's been a great ride. It's been a great ride. And there's one other insider bit of information. If you take a look at the cover, um, which is just amazing. But when you see it photographed, it's different than it is when you see it in, in person. And the, the guy who did the cover, Steve Powers, is just amazing. And as he says, the, the printer was not able to get it as dark as they were hoping. And his idea is that this is something you would see late at night through a car windshield. On a very dark night, you'll see neon. So the way to really see this this cover is to to um, put it under a fairly strong light and then put on a pair of dark glasses. You know you're dealing with an obscure book in an obscure publishing house when you need to put on dark glasses in a dark room to read it. Yeah, it can only be read through dark glasses. Well, that's how it was written. 